Wow, good crowd this morning. Appreciate you being here. I know it's uh, Thanksgiving week coming into it, and I hope that you, whatever you wind up for Thanksgiving, I hope that you have a great time and with your families and just a good rest. And many of you have probably got the week off or at least a couple of days off. And, uh, you know, uh, it's always fun time. And I, and I love the times that we have together. They're, you know, they're just really special. So you remember last week we, uh, we entered into three verses. We only got one done. We're going to try to get the other two done today. But uh, we entered into Proverbs chapter 25, verses 11, 12, and 13. I'll read them for you so we can kind of put a context to it, and then we'll uh, move in from there. It says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver, as an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger uh, to them that send him, uh, for he refreshes the soul of his, his master. I'd like to ask Dr. Rob Miller. Rob, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service today? So good to have you here today. Amen. We're a full service church. If you got hit with a car, Rob will be at your side to help you. If the person that hit you was at fault, Nick will take your case and sue them. And if you would die, I will give you your last rights. So we're in good shape all the way around. Last week we talked about a word fitly spoken. You know, we look hear that word and we just think, you know, as I said last week, the Bible in a complete concept, you know, the Bible being a fit word and all of those things. But I showed you that, um, you know, it's a very important concept how the Bible will lay itself out around patterns of principles. We've talked about principles and patterns forever. Uh, We will always talk about them because without a doubt, you know, that is the key to our success in life, doing what God has wanted us to do, fixing the problems we have in life. And, uh, you know, and that how that when you have to deal with an issue, you know, I know in my line of work, I deal with issues all the time. Uh, Many of you who work with me in the ministry, you do the same thing. What we do is we simply have an issue or problem somebody's dealing with, and we simply fit the pattern of principles to the particular issue that you're struggling with. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. We do it in our own lives first because we all have issues that we have to deal with and you take the patterns and the principles of the patterns and you stay with them, you follow them. When I'm working with somebody else, I don't have any magic wand, I don't have any spiritual pills to give you that will fix your problem. We just go to the Bible and the principles in the Bible will form themselves into patterns that you just apply to the individual issue and every problem is different, every set of patterns is different. And if you do that, it'll solve the problem. Where you get into trouble is when people will not do that. They won't follow what the Bible says. And many of them, I'm not talking about unsaved people here. I'm talking about saved people. They just simply won't do what the Bible says. And you know, patterns form pictures. And patterns are found, when you look at it closely, you'll see that patterns are found in in every area of life, from the very simple to the very complex. You know, 
my mom was famous uh, every time we get close to New Year's. I, I kind of reminisce back in the day when I was a kid growing up. My mom had a tradition that she, she started on New Year's Eve, um, and she started with one of those thousand-piece picture puzzles. And she, she, she just loved putting them together. And I have my fondest memories uh, was watching mom do that. It was after Christmas, so I had all my presents, and I would play with them until my little eyes got tired and had to go to bed. But we'd, we'd listen to Guy Lombardo. Anybody know who Guy Lombardo is? You remember who Guy Lombardo is? One or two of you? He was a famous band leader who put on a New Year's Eve show every year. And you'd watch him, maybe come on about 10, and you'd get up to midnight, and then the big thing would come down and explode, and everybody got killed. It was a great time. Happy New Year. <laughs> and I remember as a kid, you know, just all those things. And, and I was just a little guy back then. And I couldn't stay up, but I up every morning I got up, and uh, my mom would have that picture done. And it would, and, and I asked her a couple of times how she did it, and she, she told me, you know, in fact, one, the way she told me really years later was a, was a key to me learning the Bible and something that simple. But then she showed me the box, and she says, on the front of the box, there's the picture of what you're doing. And see, she said, that picture shows me the pattern of what I'm putting together. So even in something that basic, there was a pattern that was followed. You followed, you know. You build a house. Uh, you know, the, you, you'll have a set of blueprints. That's a pattern. Whoever built the house, they talk a lot about model homes. Model homes is a is a nice word for you're buying a cracker box that the next two all the way down the block look the same way. They're a model. They follow a pattern, and they can do them cheaper that way because they can just order many of the same things because all the houses are following the same pattern. I mean, it's just, it's just that, it's that simple. You know, in sports, you know, you have in football, baseball, I guess, I mean, in all things, you have, you know, you have, when you're going to play the team next week, you'll have scouts that go out and they'll watch the team play that you're going to play next week. And they'll watch for the way that they make their plays. They'll watch for patterns of, of in this situation, this is what they do. Uh, you know, and they, they form those and they come back and then they try to adjust their team to what they think they're going to do. I know it's true in the military and war. I mean, uh, you know, it's just true in a physical warfare as it is in our spiritual warfare. You know, you'll have a, you, I know, you know, most people don't think about this, but in war you have a pattern that you follow if you're going to win against another country or another army or whatever it may be. And for every issue that you're going to find in a combat situation, you were taught and trained the way to deal with it, and it's, it follows a pattern. You know, you, most people don't know these terms, but you have what they call infilade and defilade fire. That's a, those are two different patterns that you use in, in, an, in two different given situations. Every officer is trained at OCS or West Point, wherever he goes. He's trained in those patterns. There's a pattern. If you're going up against a fixed position, there's a pattern that you use. You just don't all just line up and bonsai charge them. You, there's a pattern that you use. If you're going to set up an ambush or whatever you're going to do, an assault a city or taking an airfield, there's a pattern that you follow. Up in Fort Leavenworth, they have what they call the War College. I've had many, many friends over the years that taught in that college. Uh, and, uh, you know, they learn the patterns of war. That's all they do. They will have classes that teach different tactics that the Roman Empire used back in the, in, when Rome was in power, you know, 2,000 years ago. 
They'll they'll talk about the they'll talk about the, the you know the the things in the Civil War. They'll talk about the the different uh, the Spartans and and all of those great armies that fought and they entered into warfare and they followed tactics and those tactics from World War One and even World War Two. They teach these guys today to teach them how to how to be effective in in when they go back to their country. They bring army colonels or majors up. Uh, all from all over the world. I, I've met them. I've met them from almost every country, and they come here to be trained in the art and the patterns of warfare, and they follow them. It's just simple. We certainly see it in weather. They talk about weather patterns. They never get them right, but they talk about weather patterns. You know, uh, they have models for them. Well, there's a hurricane, all right? They'll show you on a map where that thing is going long before five days before it gets there. You know why? Because they've, they've, they've tracked those things for so many years now. They know how the different air temperature, water temperature, puts it into a pattern, and a storm pattern. So it's no great revelation that in life there should be patterns of human nature that we follow and patterns of dealing with man's issues and his problems. You know, last week I showed you uh, two concepts, the apples of gold and the pictures of silver and how they're related to the Word of God. And obviously, for your life and my life, if you want to have a problem-free life and you want to have a victorious Christian life, you have to get the gold standard of the Christian life, and that is the principles of the Word of God. And how through the Bible, the unfolding story of one who God is and what God has done for us, the gold and the pictures of silver. And of course, it shows God's plan for us of redemption. For God so loved the world. It's a pattern. There's a pattern that God established for salvation. And then after you're saved, there's a pattern that God established for you to have the victorious Christian life. And today... You know, I want to look at the next two verses, uh, verses 12 and 13. And uh, verse 12 says, As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. And I want to take a few moments this morning, and I want to, uh, we're going to talk about a number of things, but I'm going to always bring it back to one central thing today, and that is I want to talk about an obedient ear. What does that mean? Now, obedience will be, without a doubt, the key to an orderly, peaceful Christian life. And, uh, you know, obedience is, is the key ingredient in our relationship with God, if not after we're saved, if not the key ingredient. I mean, it means absolutely nothing. And you hear this all the time. I see it all the time. We deal with it all the time. In all my almost 50 years of the ministry, this has been, this is exactly what you find. It means absolutely nothing if you say you believe the Bible's the Word of God, you love the Bible, you talk about the things of God and all how wonderful it is. It means absolutely nothing if you're not willing to be obedient to it and do it what it says. And we have a lot of God's people today that, oh, they love the Bible, they love God, they love everything about it. But when it comes down to their own personal lives or their families or even their kids, they seem like that there's one set of rules for everybody else, but then there's another set of rules for themselves. And, uh, you know, so many of God's people will claim to be a Christian, yet they'll live their lives in total disobedience to what the Word of God says. When it comes to obedience, let me just say this. When it comes to obedience, we don't get to pick and choose what we want to obey. We just have to obey it all. 
There's a pattern for marriage. There's a pattern for training up your children. There's a pattern for every aspect of your life. And obedience is the key. I mean, we demand obedience, or or at least want obedience, in all areas of our lives, Uh, especially in the lives of of our children. I mean, I deal with parents all the time, having all my ministry who, who, who want their kids to obey them. And you know as well as I do, the kids will grow up in disobedience and they won't obey their parents. Then you find other kids who line themselves up to the Word of God. Their mom and dad have been good models for them and they, they obey. They're obedient to what mom and dad says. They see the value. You know, there's people who are obedient to to, to preaching the Word of God, uh, to a church, to a pastor. They recognize that he's not giving them anything to hurt them. He's there to preach for their own good. But people like to get selective, and they get their nose bent out of joint when you say something that, that is against where they're going in life, even though where they're going in life may not be the best way to go. And it's a thing where we demand obedience in a lot of things. But we, we demand it in our animals. I mean, how many of you have ever taken an unruly dog to obedience school? You know, and I was thinking about this week, you know, I don't think you take cats to obedience school. <laughs> I've never heard of that. You know why? Because cats just do whatever they want to do anyhow. <laughs> so, you know, cats are not, but, but, but animals are. You know, we've had animals that we've taken to obedience school. And, you know, we want them to obey. You want them, you want them, you don't, you want them to be, tell you when it's time to go out. You want them to be potty trained. You, I, I think every time I come to church, when I drive down uh, Nolan Road there, right where the old drag strip used to be, there's a guy there every Sunday morning with Frisbees, and he's got three dogs. And, those, and he's throwing the Frisbees, and I, you know, I just drive real slow. It's the most amazing thing. And he's got three dogs, and I don't know how they figure this out, but the three dogs are maybe like 60, 70 feet away, and they're sitting one here, one here, and one here. And he throws a Frisbee, and the one on the end will run out and grab it and bring it up to him. The two will sit right there. And then they'll go, that one will go back and sit down. He'll throw the second one. And the second, how do they figure that out? I do not know. I just know this. If I tried that with my dogs, they'd say, oh, boy, a drag strip. I'll reach you to the end. I mean, they, they're totally undisciplined. I mean, when I, call, when I call the vet to take my male buddy, he's pretty good. He, but Daisy's a spastic. I mean, she is. She gets so hyper about everything. And when I call the vet and I say, hey, doc, I said, I got to bring one of my labs in. He gets real quiet on the other end. <laughs> and he says, which one? And I say, but, oh, buddy, good. Yeah, bring I say, Daisy. He says, okay. But she's crazy. She just, she gets into everything. If you would leave and come back and leave her alone, she'd have a little headset on with a stethoscope around her neck. And she, that's her. She gets into everything. And I, I, there's no way you're going to fix that. I mean, I've tried to get her to sit, and she just doesn't sit. I, I can't have to keep him on leashes. I would love, you know what I love? And I wouldn't do this because I would be too afraid, but I love big dogs in the back of pickup trucks. I think that's the neatest thing on the planet. Oh, yeah. You know, pull up to another truck, see on down the road, man. I mean, the big old dog sitting in that thing, man. 
If I did that, my dogs, they'd be dead. They'd be over the side. They'd be up everywhere. Daisy'd be sitting on top of the cab with her head in the ear with her ears blowing in the wind. I, I could never do it, but I envy that. But it takes discipline. Some of you put in those, you know, some of you cheat. You don't want to discipline, so you buy an invisible fence. I know how it goes. And that dog has to be disciplined to coming up against that fence. Some of you guys, you know, you get, if you have hunting dogs and you want to really train them, you get a shock collar. And shock collar will get your dog's attention because you can set the voltage on it, you know. If you're having a good day, you just kind of lightly, if you're really in a bad mood, zip that sucker up to about 100 volts and he'll get the message. And you do that to discipline. I'm just waiting for shock collars for God's people to come out. And I'm going to get a lay We're going to sell them in the bookstore. And I'll even give some of you some. I'll just say, here, wear this. But we want discipline. We demand it in almost everything in our lives. I mean, and I'm telling you for sure, the evidence of a changed life in a Christian, the evidence of a changed life that leads to everything in his life being the way God wants it to be will simply be our attitude now that we are saved, our attitude toward being obedient, to obey. You know, that was... Israel had a lot of problems, and we could list all the issues and go through every book of the Old Testament and come up with a, a volume ourselves. But you know, the basic problem was, in their life, obedience. Before they ever got in the land, in Joshua chapter 1, he told them, Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which my, uh, Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest... Uh, you know, uh, mayest uh, approve whether thou, whether thou goest, prospering whether thou goest. And he said, you got to obey what I'm saying. In the book of Judges, we see the complete collapse of the nation of Israel. And if, if you wanted to put a subtitle to the book of Judges, it would simply be trust and obey, for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's one of our songs in the hymnal. Every time they disobeyed God, they got taken over by another Gentile nation. And the whole book is about their disobedience to what God told them they had to do in Joshua chapter 1. And it's the theme of the book of Judges. It's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, you can, you can see uh, it, will, it will take strength, it will take courage to obey God's word. From Joshua chapter 1, he says, Be thou strong and very courageous. It, you don't just... You don't just wake up after you get saved and say, I'm going to obey God. There's things in our lives that we have to change. And we have to have courage sometimes to change it. And then we have to have the strength to keep it changed once we change it. I think the greatest example of, of a lack of strength uh, and courage in obedience would be found in uh, the life of a guy that we've talked about in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15, those chapters is the life of Saul. I mean, and it forms a great principle for us. You know, Saul's a picture of a child of God who in every aspect of his life will be in total disobedience. And yet, he's in church every Sunday. He's a king. He's a prophet over the nation of Israel. He has the Spirit of God. He has the power of God from time to time in the Old Testament sense, the way God gives it to a man. I mean, he, he's a perfect picture of a child of God today who is saved, who's on his way to heaven, and yet 
when it comes to what the Bible says. They just simply do what they want to do. I mean, first of all, his, his disobedience is classic. First of all, he, he was told, he knew that he was to stay away from all the other nations. How many times did God tell the nation of Israel not to have anything to do with the nation of other nations? And yet, here he is. He makes an alliance with the Philistines in chapter 13, who are the enemies of God. He foolishly thinks that he can trust them, much like a lot of God's people think that getting alliance with unsaved people in the world, that you're going to be okay. And what winds up happening is the Philistines through a connection with Saul, they convinced him to put all the blacksmiths out of, out of work that were making the swords for the nation of Israel's armies. And they said, you don't need to do that. We will make the swords for them. And so when they got the blacksmiths to quit making the swords and the Philistines, the world was producing the sword, type of the word of God. They kept the swords back from the nation of Israel. And when it was time to go to war, they had nothing to fight with. You know, that's what the world will do for you. It'll take the Word of God from you, and when you have to fight the spiritual warfare and the spiritual battle, you'll have nothing left to fight with. The world will take it from you. And that was Saul's biggest mistake. But it didn't stop there. In chapter 14, he, we, we preached about this a couple of months ago. He, he, he put the people under an unbiblical oath that they weren't allowed to eat before they went to battle. And it was a stupid oath. It was something that was nowhere in the Bible should he have made that. But Saul, like a lot of God's people, he's making it up as he goes along. And what he's doing has nothing to do with the principles of the Word of God. And I find a lot of God's people today, they talk about loving God. They talk about loving the Bible. And they go to church. But when it comes down to their individual lives or their families, it's another whole matter. They won't follow the principles. They'll do their own thing. And then they wonder why they lose their kids. They wonder why they have the issues that they have. They wonder why they struggle with the things in their own personal lives. It's because that everything in life has to follow a pattern. And the Christian life is no different than buying a house or doing this or doing that. It's built on a pattern. In chapter 15, God told him that when you fight the Amalekites, you, Amalek and those guys, you kill them all. You kill every man, you kill every woman, you kill all the children, you kill all the animals. And, and people have a tough time with that because they're thinking, well, why would he kill, God want him to kill all the, all the little kids? And why would God uh, want uh, uh, him to kill all the animals? Well, if you would understand the gravity of sin back in that times and with those nations, uh, everything was dedicated to the false gods and to the devil, even the animals. And it was an absolute mess. And God said, you know what? It goes to show you how that you can't let one inch of the world into your life. You can't. Yet the Bible says, God says, you keep it out and you do your own. No, no, don't let it in. And yet we always say, we always think we know more about our lives than God does. And we always do that. So we think, oh, God didn't really mean all of it. So I'll let a little bit in. And a little leaven leaveneth a whole lump. And as my old grandmother used to say, you give the devil an inch and he'll wind up being a ruler. That's 12 inches. You can take it all. My saying is you give the devil an inch and he'll drive an 18-wheeler through it in time. 
I like mine better than my grandmother's, but my grandmother, with all due respect to her, she was a wise woman. <laughs> and you know what he did? Samuel shows up and Samuel says, and, 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 and Saul, he's just like so many of God's people. He's boasting around, hey, Samuel, how you doing? Samuel says, I'm doing good. And he says, well, I obeyed God in everything that he said. Samuel said, really? Absolutely. Then what is the bleeding of these sheep I hear in my ear? Well, I, 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 I didn't kill all the sheep. I kept the sheep. Because, you know, they're good for sacrifice. So we'll keep the sheep. Now, Samuel didn't get into all this, but Samuel kind of read in the riot act. But here's what Samuel's underlying principle was. When you take a sheep that is dedicated to the false fire god, Molech and Baal and all of that, you don't want to offer them to God. God is not, listen to me, God is not infringing in your offering to him that you've already offered to the world. And that's exactly what we do. We give God what is convenient for us. We obey God where it's convenient and it works out for us. But you don't have that option as a Christian. I have deal with people all the time. You know, people would rather, you know, people don't, don't always like to come and talk to me about their issues because they know that there'll be no, there'll be no cushion with that. It's the principles. I mean, I won't be mad at you and I won't, you know, and I'll help you any way I can, but you know what? I'm not interested in your homespun way you do things. I've been down that road in my own life and dealing with people. It doesn't work. And at the end of the day, it, God be true and every man a liar. And it's just that simple. So when you come to me with a problem, you better want to solve it. Because we're going to go to the problem. We're not going to treat the symptom. And it may be unpleasant for you. You may not want to deal with it. You may have convinced yourself that the way you're going in life is okay. But the obvious results are not. We're going to fix that based on the patterns. But he kept those sheep alive. He kept the oxen. He kept some of, he wanted to, he, in other words, he wants to reinterpret the principles. And you can't do that. Back in chapter 13, verse 8. You know, he, 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 he was a king and he was a, he, was a, he was a prophet. Those are two offices. There were three offices in the Old Testament that a man could have. He could be a king, he could be a prophet, or he could be a priest. In the Old Testament, there's only one man that was all three, and that is David. David's a king, David is a prophet, and David is a priest. The only other person uh, in the world that is both is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's king, he's prophet, and he's priest because he's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Saul, Saul was a king and a prophet, but he wasn't a priest. And as a priest, he was not allowed to offer the sacrifice. So here we have, here we have. It, sacrifice had to be at 6 o'clock. And Samuel's the only one that can do it. So Saul's all around there, you know, and, and, and you know, he's, he, Samuel hasn't showed up yet. And it's getting close to 6 o'clock. And Saul, you know, he says, well, and so it gets really close to 6 o'clock. And so Saul says, well, what am I going to do? You know, Samuel's not here. Um, the offering has to be done. I know I'm not a priest, but I'm going to force myself to give that offering. And he gave the offering, which he was not allowed to do, and he got no more got that offering done than Samuel showed up in time to still do the offering. You know what Saul's problem is? He's got the same problem we got. 
he gets into a situation that God doesn't come through in his time frame, he thinks he has the authority to step over the line and do it his way. And he doesn't. And old Samuel gave it to him. And with that one was, is, comes one of the greatest principles found anywhere in the Word of God. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 and 23. It says in 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And in a great, great principle, Behold, to obey is better than the sacrifice. You know what he's saying? He says, you know what? You thought because what you were doing looked good. It sounded good. And, you know, in a, in a Christian world, you know, who would question it? I mean, it wasn't like you went out to the bars or you'd smoke this or you did that or you got high. You saw that a sacrifice had to be made and Samuel didn't come in time, so you stepped in and did it. And he says, you know what? There's God's people that are always doing things in church, doing things in ministry, doing things wherever. And we look at that like that's some great thing, and it is. But I want to tell you, the bottom line, doing those things does not take the place of obeying what he said. And he says to obey is better than sacrifice. I've met God's people all my life. Went to church, had the right Bible, did all this. But when it came to their families, when it came to their personal life, when it came to their children, when it came to their marriage, when it came to everything else that was out there, the principles were clear. The patterns were clear. But they follow their own rules. And they think because they have the right Bible, go to church, pray a lot, love God, talk about all those things, that that somehow just overrides the fact that you're not obeying the principles. Well, maybe in your church it will, but not here. Because the Bible is very clear about it. He says in verse 23, oh, this is a good one. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion in disobedience. Not rebellion in, uh, you know, going. Diso, the very act of disobedience over the principles of the Word of God. God God's opinion, not mine. I would never say this. Because when I'm rebellious, I don't want to be a witch. I would never say, but this is God's opinion on it. Not mine. He says for rebellion. And in the context, it's the rebellion of disobedience. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Of course, this is where Saul loses the kingdom. But what he's saying here is the fact that, uh, boy, it, it never ceases to amaze me how goofy God's people can be because they're so out of touch with what the Bible says. I mean, uh, you know, Every time we come around to Halloween, you know, you get all these Christians out there say, well, Halloween's such a pagan day. I'm not going to celebrate Halloween. But no, but you'll celebrate Christmas, which is 100,000 times more pagan than Halloween ever thought about being. Or you'll drag out your Ashtar bonnet on Ashtar Sunday with all your frills upon it and go to church and have an Easter Ashtar service when Ashtar Easter was the god of fertility and is as pagan as anything you ever want in your life. That's why we don't have an Ashtar service here. We have a 
person dressed up in a bunny costume, but we make her run around the parking lot and the guy shoot at her with 20 gauges and knock her down, but that's okay. But it's a thing where they're just as pagan. Somebody says, well, I don't believe in Halloween. Well, how about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? Are they in your day planner? Because those are all pagan gods. How about January, February, March, April, May? They're all pagan gods. You see what I'm saying? Everything in this world is pagan. But it always ceases to amaze me if somebody says, well, I'm not doing that, but, 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 but it's connected with the devil. But your disobedience this morning as a child of God, your disobedience to your drinking and your smoking and all of the things that you do, you don't like Halloween. You're a witch by your rebellion. God's people are the stupidest people on the planet. They're so pious. And yet, your own disobedience in God's mind, he's marking you as a witch. Witchcraft. I would never do that. I just think you're stupid. But God goes beyond that because that's the pattern. You see how when you get into the Bible and you stay with it and you follow the patterns, you begin to see how non-biblical most biblical people really are. God's people today live way outside the Word of God. They, they live in the sacrifices. Well, you know what we do for the Lord? I don't care what you do for the Lord. Do you obey what He says? Well, you don't understand the ministries I'm involved in. and I'm not. I don't care about that. At the end of the day, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, now here's the key to hearing what God says to you. And I need to tell you this, too. Learning obedience is not a natural process. You don't get saved and wake up the next day and be total in obedience. You just don't. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 talks about us being a workman. You have to work every day of your life of being obedient to what the Word of God says. But first off, you've got you to find out what He says. It never ceases to amaze me. Now, I know, and I, don't, I get accused of this all the time, and I'm certainly not saying this because I don't believe this church is the greatest church on the planet. I don't. I believe it's just like any other church. But I do know this. You get the truth here. Amen. I don't care if it's Sunday morning or Thursday night or whenever it is. You get the adulterated truth here. You get it right across the plate, waist high, where you can swing at it. It's never hidden. It's never cloaked. It's never uh, where you got to think, I wonder what he said. It, it's never that way here. You will leave here completely understanding what the Bible says. That's the only way I know how to be. And, I, and I've watched it all of my life. I've watched it all of my life. How people will, you know, they'll, they'll, they just, they won't work at hearing what God says. But you've got to know what he says first. You've got to take what is said from this pulpit, from Bible study, from the people who are discipling you, or the people who are teaching you principles, there it is, principles. You have to take those principles and you have to work at putting them in your life and being obedient to them. So many of God's people, you want your Bible filled with notes. You want classes on, on principles, classes on this, classes on that. You want all that material, but it doesn't change you. Nothing changes about you. You're still following the stupid stuff that you've done for years. What's the point? We're wasting our time. 
The teaching of the Bible is for one purpose. It's to give you the patterns and the principles that you can learn through a working process to be obedient to. And I, I, and I get it. None of us are going to be 100% obedient. I get that. I'm not looking for sinners for perfection. I'm looking for, I'm looking for someone who understands the patterns, who lines their life up to the patterns. And even when we don't and we fail, our failing is evidence that we understand the patterns because now we have to deal with the fact that we didn't. It's just going through this Christian life talking about praise the Lord, praise Jesus, and nothing in your world is lining up to what the principles say. I'm not talking about what you think or what you want to believe. I'm talking about the patterns, the principles themselves. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1, 2, I think it's 3 also, I think you have the greatest layout there of the process of putting the Word of God in your life to a great degree. I, pre- I preached it to you more than once, I'm sure. But in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 2, he says, incline thine ear unto wisdom. That suggests that hearing what God says takes some work. In the Gospels, when he was dealing with the apostles, you know what he always said? He says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. You know why? Because the apostles were famous for listening but not hearing. When you get over to the book of Revelation in the first three chapters to the church, you and me, you know what he says? He says, hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. We don't. But for you and for me, hearing what God says will totally depend on how you receive it. And this is the key, how you receive it in your heart first. It'll never get into your head and stay there unless it goes through your heart first. What you do with the words fitly spoken in your heart will determine how it ever gets to your head. Obedience will always start in the heart with a word fitly spoken. The Bible talks about earrings of gold. You hearing the word of God. Hearing is something being said. Listening is paying attention to every detail of what is being said. Then he says, ornaments of fine gold. He says, first of all, earrings of gold, and then he defines that by ornaments of fine gold. I think that's very instructive. That's something more than just gold. It's something that is made out of gold, a necklace, a bracelet, an ornament that you wear. But to take gold and make it and fashion it into something, (laughs) here it comes. Boy, do I understand this one. It first has to be beaten. Beaten gold. A workman, a goldsmith. Workmanship. He takes the gold and he heats it. He shapes it. He beats it with a hammer and he forms it and fashions it into something that is beautiful for you to wear. And in your life and my life, God gives us the gold, the Word of God, but for it to affect in your heart and to give you the obedience, we got to go through a beating process. We got to go through a process where God takes the gold, shapes it, molds it, does the work as a goldsmith, and comes out with an ornament that you can wear as a Christian that 
everybody in the world sees. You know, the idea of it starting in your heart and then getting into your head. You know, the greatest example of that, I think, is, is our own salvation. And when I deal with somebody uh, about their soul and I win them to Christ, I, I follow this pattern. Uh, you know, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 are the key verses that you use when you get to that crucial point. But there's two aspects to salvation. Most people never see this. There's the heart and then there's the head. He says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, there's your head, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised thee from the dead, there's the second one, thou shalt be saved. Then in verse 10 he defines it. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Two aspects to your salvation. When I deal with somebody, I use that verse 10, and I said, when they're ready to get to the point that I'm ready to Christ, I stop them and I'm going to say, okay, let's make sure we understand something. The Bible says there's two aspects to your salvation. It says, for man uh, believeth, uh, uh, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Let's stop right there. Let me tell you what righteousness it is. Righteousness is Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, first thing you've got to do is believe in your heart under righteousness. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came down and died for you on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, in your heart, do you believe that he's the only way you can get to heaven? There's nothing else you do. Do you believe that his death on the cross had enough atonement to pay for all your sins? Do you believe that in your heart? Do you believe that him coming down and dying for you gives you the ability to turn from your sin, repent, and then live your life based on the principles and the Word of God. Do you believe that in your heart? Yes, sir, I do. Okay, based on what you believe in your heart, now we're ready to confess with your mouth and get it into your head. So bow your head and God come into my heart and save me, you know I'm a sinner, you know all this stuff, you know. And I, just, and, and now, I said, now when he's done, I said, now you did. Based on what the Bible says, you believed in your heart and you confessed with your mouth. You have the heart knowledge and you have the head knowledge. Now your life can be different because it just isn't. And you know, and this is the problem in my own humble opinion this morning. This is why I think so many of God's people struggle with so many things in the Christianity that we live in today and has been for the last 30, 40 years. All most of them ever get is a head knowledge. I've seen young men and young ladies struggle with something. I've watched them struggle with their salvation. I've watched them struggle with spiritual things. I've watched them struggle with their own Christian life. I've watched them try to be saved, and yet they still drink, or they still smoke dope, or they still smoke this or that, or they go into all these things. And it's a legitimate struggle. It, it, it really is. It's a legitimate struggle for them. And I've seen that all my life. And yet I've watched these guys, I've watched these gals, and, you know, uh, they're, they're really, they're really, they love the deep things of the Bible. Oh, they'll study the Antichrist, they'll study all this stuff. They love the deep things of the Bible. It's the individual, practical relations things with God that they never want to be a part of. You know why that is? Because you can have the deep doctrinal things of the Bible without ever having any accountability. But, brother, you get down on that level where you're building a relationship with God every day in your life, you have to change some things because there's where your obedience comes in. I don't have to be obedient to the tribulation period. I don't have to be obedient to the Antichrist. I don't have to be obedient to the seven years of the tribulation. I don't have to be obedient to the great doctrinal things. Those are just really neat things that we can talk about. Wow, look what I know about the Bible. 
To obey is better than to sacrifice. And you stay in those things because when you get down on a personal level where you get into the Bible and you start making that Bible part of your life in a building a relationship with him that you learn those things, there comes the accountability which demands obedience. You have to give up some things and you're not willing to do that. And I, I simply say, I've said this many, many times, personally, this is my own personal opinion based on just a few short 50 years. I know what it takes for a person to really be saved. And I know that in a real biblical sense of salvation, just like the witchcraft thing, you know, we look at things different. I'm going to tell you something. If you're truly saved, there has to be a change in your life. You just don't get saved and just keep on smoking and drinking and doing all that you want to do and living your life and cussing and doing all the things that an unsaved man does. That Bible says, I'm sorry, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creature. Old things are passed away. How is the old thing still here? You said, well, I, I, I got saved. No, well, I'm, I'm not going to doubt your salvation because it's none of my business, but I'm going to say this. I look at that and I question knowing the Bible that, yeah, you made a head decision, but it never got in your heart. And that's why you struggle. That's why you have the issues you issue. You got a head knowledge about God in the Bible, but it never got into your heart that you got that personal. Forget the doctrine stuff. Forget this. Tell me, tell me what... God loves. Tell me the seven things God loves. Tell me the seven things God hates. Show me the, the, the seven things the Holy Spirit of God does for you in your life. Show me how you apply those. That's where you need to be. But no. This is the danger of today of quick salvations. Meet somebody in a bus stop. Meet somebody on an airplane. Meet somebody wherever, you know, knocking on doors. Go to somebody and you got to what? five, ten minutes to, to, to tell them everything they need to know about getting saved. Are you kidding me? And here's how it goes. No. Hi, we're just passing up and down through here. and You know, I just wanted to know, if you died today, do you know where you go to heaven? No, I don't know. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus died for you. Did you ever hear that? No, I never heard that before. He died for you on the cross, and if you bow your head right now and trust Christ as your own personal Savior, he'll wipe away your sins. You believe that? Yeah, I do. Why don't you bow your head and ask me? And the guy bows his head. You go on your way, putting a notch on your pistol. And all you did was give him a head knowledge. You know, that's why I don't give an invitation every week. That's why if you do get saved here, it's usually through a lengthy process of going through discipleship for a while or getting involved in a while. You know why? Because I want it to get into your heart before it ever tries to get into your head. Because just getting into your head won't do it for you. And I'm not interested in quick salvations. But that's what we have today. I had a guy one time, believe it or not, he was teaching a class on evangelism. And he said, he said to this guy, he says, this guy did not want to get saved. And he's talking to this guy and he says, and he's telling how to do this. And he said, I'll tell you what, he said, If you ever want to get saved, here's what you need to do. Just bow your head and, and pray this prayer. And, and he says, I, I, I want you to go through it in case you ever want to get saved. And just bow your head. And he, 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 he led him through the sinner's prayer. And the guy said it out loud. The guy looked up. He said, is that all? And the guy says, I got some news for you. You just got saved. Really? 
So now we can add to our spiritual agenda, tricking you into heaven. There is no quick salvation. There is no down and dirty, let's hit town and get out. No, you've got to earn the right and you've got to spend the time to get it into their heart. You just can't put it into their head. And I doubt very seriously in 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 15 minutes, you can accomplish that. Maybe somebody you can, uh, they've already been ready to go, maybe, maybe, maybe. But in most cases, absolutely not. And this is why they struggle. This is why they get confused. They get, dis, dis, they get disillusioned. They, they, they say, well, I, I'm, I'm saved. I got saved. No, you got saved in your head. And the reason why here you are still struggling with the things of the world after you claim to be a Christian and you can't get victory over and you have no real desire to get into the Bible, you'd rather do your own thing. That's not, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says it is. The book has to penetrate your heart before you can hear what it's really saying to you. Otherwise, it's just a head knowledge. And I'll tell you right now, Psalms 119, 176 verses, 1 through 176. If you want to read those sometimes, that'll give you an exact understanding of what it means to have the Word of God in your heart. The gold and silver of God, when it gets into your heart, will form a pattern of truth that will lead you to a complete Christian life. Joy fulfilled, as 1 John 1, 4 says. These things have I written unto you that your joy may be full. The thing that's lacking in God's people's lives, there's no joy. They have church on Sunday, doing their own thing on Monday. They go back and forth. They have problems with their kids. They have problems with their marriage. They have problems with themselves. They keep have the world just keep running in and out of their lives. They have absolutely no control because they have absolutely no obedience. And these things form the patterns and they're formed into ornaments of gold that you and I now wear and everybody sees through our obedience of what he says. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. My son, hear the instructions of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. The word of God. Why? For there shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. There they are. Those are the ornaments and the chains and the necklaces you can't see physically because they're spiritual. But boy, I'll tell you what. You may not see the, the necklace around their neck, but you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God coming out of their life. Proverbs 4, 9 says, She, wisdom here, she shall give thine head an ornament of grace and a crown of glory shall be delivered to thee. Now there's a reference of you getting the gold in your life now, getting it fashioned as an ornament that you wear for the world to see, and yet the crown of glory, obviously a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you want a pattern for that? You want a pattern for obedience? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience is my, is my pattern. It says, yet though he were a son, yet he learned his obedience by the things which he suffered. That's Jesus Christ. If he learned obedience by what he went through, I'm telling you, why are not we learning the same obedience by what we go through? 
And Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, uh, and, and, and how uh, he was obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. His obedience didn't just stop, go through every days in life. He was obedient down to the very end when he died on the cross. There's your pattern and my pattern for obedience. Why, why do we still struggle with, and I know we all struggle with stuff. I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. I'm not talking about you have the rest of your life where you never do anything stupid. I'm talking about a consistent pattern of victory in your life that you live above the circumstances, that you have overcome the world. And that overcoming is the fact that your obedience now takes precedent in your life over everything. You say, well, what happens when I screw up? Oh, you'll screw up. I screw up. Let me tell you what happens when you screw up. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 through 6. You'll screw up. Nobody's going to bat a thousand. Uh, you'll, uh, uh, you'll, you'll mess it up someplace along the line. But let me show you what you do when that happens. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4, 5, and 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down uh, imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity. Oh, here we go. Bringing into captivity every thought to the, to the, to the, to the, to the obedience. There it is. Of Christ. You got a stronghold in your life? I'll tell you how you get at it. Tear it down, rip it down, and every thought, every imagination you have, find out the pattern, find out the principle, and bring it into captivity under the obedience of Christ. You say, well, that sounds easy. It won't be easy, but it'll get easier as you go. You say, what do I do if I screw up? Well, here comes the next verse. This is just for you. Verse 6. And having a readiness. Are you ready? Get down, everybody down on a three-point stance. Are you ready? And having, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. A lot of God's people like to take revenge. They don't like to take it on their own disobedience. You want to fix your disobedient problem? You want revenge? Like the old Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Cold revenge. Make you suffer. Make you pay. Mm, talk about me behind my back? Oh, I'll take your fingernails out one at a time. <laughs> revenge. You don't preach good tonight? Revenge is going to be on you. You move down one chair and we find out what he's really made of. <laughs> we, all like, we all like to take revenge. Well, you don't know what that person did to me. Boy, I'm going to get even. You know what? I wouldn't mind if you took revenge on everybody else and got even, even though it's not biblically correct. I wouldn't mind if you did it, if you were just honest across the board and did it with yourself too. Amen. What bothers me is you do it with everybody else, but we give ourselves a pass. Let me ask you a question. I should get a good amen on this. Have you ever kicked yourself in the pants spiritually for something stupid you did? Yeah. Well, one or two of you did. 
Did you ever just beat yourself up and punch yourself and beat your head against the wall over something you did that was dumb, that went against God, and once it hit you, you knew how stupid it was, you were sorry, you couldn't take it back, but you made a vow you were never going to do it again, and you took revenge. Anybody here? That's what I'm talking about. But I want you to know that that revenge taken out only comes when your obedience is fulfilled. You get the principles, you get the patterns. You don't argue about somebody or with somebody about an issue in your life when you clearly know that when we go to the book, you're coming up short because it isn't worth it. If you want a rule of thumb to follow, don't ever get in an argument about the Bible. You can't win because you're wrong going in. If you're right, stick with the book because the truth will prevail. But if you're not right with the book and you're not doing what's right and you're going to try to stick up for your stupidity, don't go to the Bible to do that. Get a good news for a modern man or, you know, whatever. Bad news for unmodern man. Take revenge on yourself, not others. That's how you do it. You know what? I'm going to tell you something. We all have this problem. We all cut ourselves too much slack. We do. You know why? Because we love it. We, we love ourselves more than anything else. I know a guy one time and I thought he'd never get married because I never thought anybody could find anybody that loved him as much as he did. We cut ourselves too much slack. We make ourselves the exception to the rule. We want to hold others accountable. We won't hold our own selves accountable. We want to make our children toe the line, but we don't want to toe it ourselves. If you came home and found your kid drinking a beer, drinking, smoking a cigarette, or smoking dope, you'd have a heart attack. But it's okay for them to see you do it. Thank you. <laughs> then it says, oh, good shape. Then it says, a wise reprover. Now that's somebody who fits the principles to your problem. The Bible says, and this is a, a great verse, we all know it, I've talked about it many, many times, and I will talk about it continually because it's such a powerful principle. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable. Bible's profitable for us. And the four things that it's profitable for, first of all, was doctrine. That's so important. Doctrine is the missing element today in, in all the neo-evangelical churches and most Baptist churches and, and most Christians' lives. They don't know what's right at all. So doctrine is important, number one, because you've got to know what's right. And then the second thing he says is reproof. Once you know what's right, then a wise reprover will show you what's wrong. And then the third thing is correction. A wise reprover will show you what's right, will show you what's wrong. Then he'll show you how to fix it. And a wise reprover knows the Word of God is profitable. He'll show you what's right. He'll show you what's wrong. He'll show you how to fix it. And if he's really wise, he'll show you how to keep it fixed. Instruction in righteousness. Now, We all need reproof. There isn't a day that goes by in my life that I don't need to be reproved of something. And I know that that's true in each one of our lives. 
There's things in our lives right now, and some of you people out there on the internet or inner tube or whatever you're at, not the inner tube. Maybe you are. We don't like reproof. This is why some people don't like hard preaching. I've heard people all my life say, well, I don't like him. He's just too hard of a preacher. Let me, what, let me translate that for you. I don't like what he said because he's coming right down where I live and I don't want to hear it. Now, if you get in the Word of God and you grow and you love God and love the book, the Bible says over there in Proverbs, he that loveth a honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. I don't like, I don't like hearing what's wrong with me but I like it from the aspect that I know there's plenty wrong with me and I need to hear it. And after a while, I enjoy it. I enjoy somebody telling me and hearing somebody preach on something that maybe that I didn't want to deal with and now here it is, I'm faced with it. I appreciate that. I do. And the problem is that people don't want reproof today. Uh, they want their lives to go on, and a man will, uh, again, somebody, a person dealing with them or somebody preaching will lay something out and say something that goes against their grain, and uh, the very fact that it goes against their grain shows me that they have a problem with it, otherwise they would just go right on with life. And, you know, they don't want reproof, and it's a thing where that's okay if that's where you're at, but a wise reprover will always take and fit the principles of the patterns to the problem. And then you got to get it into your heart and then get it into your head and then you have the ability to change where you're at. And our, our, our guy here, our, our wise reprover, he's wise simply because he uses the pattern through the principles of the Word of God. He sees the problem. He understands through the Word of God the cause and the effect and the remedy to the problem. So he takes that word, fitly spoken, and applies it to the issue. I've learned this over the years. Most people with problems, and this is certainly true with a lot of parents with their kids, and it's true a lot of parents too. I will edify you. I will try to edify you. Edify means make you better than what you are. I try to, in my preaching and my teaching, no matter what it may be, I have a goal, underlying goal in everything I do that I want you to leave better than you came. If it's just one little thing you picked up on, if it's just a joke you can tell in the office tomorrow, that's good with me too. But I, I want to always edify you. I don't think we don't do each other any service if we leave each other the same when we meet. That's why I'm always telling you, you know, how much you mean to me, the church, how much I love you. I don't do that because I'm just trying to tell you that. I do that because I really mean that. And I want to leave you better than, than our, our, because you know, I've, I've learned a lot of people we talk to through the day, we just kind of, maybe you come in and I come over and hug you. I, maybe your day didn't start out very well. Maybe deep down you're struggling with something, with your kids or with your uh, spouse or in your own personal life. And nobody would see it. Nobody would know. You don't hang a cardboard sound around, oh, I'm struggling, hug me. <laughs> but I have learned that if we do and keep the edification always open in our lives of just telling somebody how special they are, maybe that's exactly what they need at that point. 
Edification is simply me making you better than you are when you came here today. Edification is you helping the person sitting next to you being better, being kind, being considerate, being compassionate. And, you know, I, I, I will always edify you, but I want to tell you something. I'll tell you what I won't do. I will never enable you. A lot of preachers in their preaching, they'll enable their people. A lot of parents will enable their kids. Their kids just have all kinds of problems, and the parents will never stand up with the principles and the patterns, so they just keep enabling them to go on the way they are. I've known, I, I, know, I know a couple that uh, left this church a number of years ago, and they had some kids, and those kids were the most worthless kids you ever saw in your life. Absolutely worthless. And yet, I always thought that all three of those boys had great potential. I thought they had great potential to really do some things. Good personalities at a time in their life before they got way out in left field were very, were nice. But I watched that thing unfold, and I knew this couple for close to 30, 35 years. And I watched all three of the boys just wind up in the trench. Disaster. And I, I attribute it to one thing. I attribute it to the fact that mom and dad always enabled them. They never held those kids accountable to anything. One of the boys got a girl pregnant at one time. And I remember the mother talking. This is not, I was standing right there. She was talking to me about it. And she, she was, this girl, this, her son had gotten some gal pregnant. And this is the, this is the mindset that they, they had all of their lives. It was the girl's fault for not having anything to stop the pregnancy. It was the girl's fault. It was always somebody else's fault with their kids. No matter what happened, it was this person's fault or this person's fault. You know, I had, she said to me one time, it was a comical, and I never said anything. I just, you know, I just listened. Uh, you can't deal with people like that. You just stay away from them. Uh, in fact, when they left the church, I called them an Uber driver. <laughs> she said to me one time, her son was hanging out with this kid who was worthless too. And that mother and family was in the church too at that time. And she comes over to me and she's, she's complaining and whining about her boy not being where he needs to be and blaming it on this other kid that he's hanging out with as a bad influence. Now, I never said anything, but just the day before, the other mother, yeah, I should know where I'm going with this. The other mother had got a hold of my ear and was whining and complaining about her boy was in such a mess because of the guy he was hanging out with. And, and, and I don't get into those things. I, I may ask a very serious pointed question just to maybe try to get you to think, which didn't work. She's going on and on and on about this. And I just, and when I left for a while, I said, let me, let me ask you a question. I said, okay, this kid's a mess and your kid's a mess because he's hanging out with this kid and you want to blame this kid. I just got one question and then I got to go. Who taught your boy the value system in choosing friends? Yeah, it got just that quiet. It was quiet as a turkey farm day after next Thursday. <laughs> you like that. Kid knows good jokes when he hears them. I love him. 
I'm going to tell you something. I will, I will edify you. I, will, I promise you this, no matter who you are. I may not even know you very well, but that doesn't matter. I look at my job as a pastor of everything I do to try to make you better. And if it's as simply as something as, you look really nice today. That's really a nice dress. Too bad they didn't have it in your size. Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I'm just kidding. I think that old. My job is to always try to make you better than when I met you, when we meet. And that's my goal. Because I don't do you any good by, by enabling you. I don't help you at all by letting you continue to go the way you're going. Uh, I, I always try to, uh, to be that for you so that we'll have a little connection, a little bond that when maybe not at that point in time, but at some point in your life, when you know you need to change it, you'll remember the kindness of the edification and you'll come back and talk to me about it. I've had that happen so many times over the years. And I've just found it's better always to, here again, my old grandmother, if you can't say nice about something, somebody said, don't say nothing. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing where, you know, I, I, I want to leave people better. We need to leave each other better than when we, we met them. Send them on their way, because you never know. You never know when they're struggling. And that one little uplifting edification may be what they need to carry them through. And that's all. It's just, and, and, and if you don't need it, if you're doing fine, then stick it in your back pocket till you do need it. I mean, what's in your wallet today? I mean, that's how it works. <laughs> it will come into our hearts and we'll either accept it or we'll reject it. But it all starts in the heart. Now, what you will do will depend on the outcome, like the book of Judges. You hear what is said and you apply it, or you don't, you hear it and you reject it. The apples of gold through the pictures of silver will through in your life, through the issues that you're dealing with, the reproof, it will shape you as an ornament of gold. It'll make you. You know, the problems we all face, they'll either make us or they'll break us. You get to choose which that is. And you get to choose based on, do you hear what he's saying? You know, as the Bible says about a godly woman in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, she has the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. It's something that you wear. The patterns of the principles that are evidence in your life that you wear, that other people see. It's like I said last week in 1 Timothy 1.16 and Titus chapter 2 verse 7 that us through the gold apples and the pictures of silver taking the rebuke and, and the Bible says becoming a pattern of good works for all to see and follow. It's evident in your life. It's the process of allowing God into your heart, into your head, and then taking over your life. Verse 13 says, as cold, uh, as, cold, uh, uh, as cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him. 
for he refreshes the soul of his master. Simply put, when you and I do the work of God, it's refreshing to those that sent us, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's refreshing to them. It's an ornament that we wear that people see, even though it's spiritual and it's invisible. It's unmistakable. You know, God's people, and I'm not fighting this, so please, if you're in this category, please don't get mad at me because I don't care. But I'm making a point. Don't miss the point. God's people are famous for wearing Christian jewelry. They really are. They'll, they'll wear crucifixes, you know. You see these guys with crucifixes, you know. Priests wear them. <laughs> nuns wear them. I mean, everybody wears them. Uh, all the evangelical guys, you know, they, they wear them. And, and people like that, you know. And then you see the, you know, you see the fish pin, you know, the little fish. And then, you, you know, some, I've seen car dealerships. that You buy a car. It's run by Christians. They put, a, they put the demon fish on the car. And your car breaks down, burns oil in 100 miles. It's, it's just the way it is. I've seen that, you know. Uh, first, if I bought a car that had a little fish on it, first thing I'd do is either turn it into a squid or take it off. Uh, you know, we think that that's Christian. That all comes in with Constantine. That little fish there is Dagon, the fish god, half man, half fish, back in the book of Judges. That's what that is. You know, but we came in with Constantine. And the dove, you know, the little dove pins, you know, and the doves, you know, all those things. Uh, you know, uh, it, it just seems that nobody cares about what Deuteronomy chapter 4 says. You know, take ye therefore no heed, or, uh, heed uh, unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image or a similitude of any figure, a likeness of a male or a female. So you're having a little Joseph and Mary on your dashboard, you know, little bobbleheads, you know. I don't care if it rains and freezes as long as I have my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car, you know. Keep the highway patrol off of it, you know, radar detector. Joseph's eyes light up when you're going too fast, and, you know. And when it starts pouring out behind you, little Mary says, slow down, you know. You know. <laughs> the likeness of any beast. There's on there. The likeness of any wing fowl. There's your dove. <coughs> Got him, you know. The likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground. There's the guy you went out with last weekend. <laughs> the likeness of any fish. You see, this is a pattern here. How could somebody read that? I, you know, a guy one time, he, he wore, I, 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 you know, and, I, and I, he had a crucifix on, which I don't care. And, you know, and, and we were talking about it, and, he, and I said, I said, I just said why, do you, why do you wear a crucifix? And he says, well, he says, uh, that, was the, that was the form of death that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and I want everybody to know that I'm a Christian. I said, wow. He said, what do you mean, wow? I said, I'm just, thank God he wasn't put in an electric chair. <laughs> you see carrying a little electric chair on a chain around your neck? <laughs> I thought he was shot in the firing squad. <laughs> What's that M16 around your neck for? <laughs> Jesus was shot in the firing squad, and I'm wearing it because I'm a Christian. Oh, I thought you were an NRA member. <laughs> I don't care if you wear them. I would never say anything to you. Somebody says, well, my grandmother gave me that. God bless your grandmother, and then you wear it because you honor your grandmother with it. I have no problem with that. I really don't. If, you, if your grandmother gave it to you or somebody special gave it to you, the love of your life gave it to you, you know, unless you've broken up with him, keep it. <laughs> but understand... Those things don't make you a Christian. Those things are the outward adorning. 
Bible talks about a, the, the woman, the outward adoring of painting her face and the plaiting of hair. And hey, I'm all for that. I've known Pentecostal women. Please do something with that. I mean, I believe old Bob Jr. was right. If the barn door needs painting, you paint that sucker. I agree. I mean, I've seen some of them, boy, I'll tell you what, Freddy Krueger, I mean, you'd be a good stand-in for him. And they think because they don't wear makeup and they're ugly as, a, as somebody that fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down, they think because they don't wear any makeup that that makes them godly. Because if you put makeup on, it makes you ungodly. Well, it may make you ungodly, but you look ungodly without any makeup on, so please put some on. I mean, it's just that simple. I'm, I, I'm just telling you. And, you know, and people get mad when you talk like that because, like, you know, I mean, I get it. I mean, I know. I mean, I, I, know, I know the great length that women go to to fix themselves to look okay, and I get that. <laughs> Praise God for it. I mean, it's good. I remember back in the day when my sister... They used to roll pop, roll your hair in pop cans. How many remember that? You'd take your hair and roll them in pop cans. And she'd walk through the house with nine pop cans on her head. She looked like a thousand watt radio station getting ready to broadcast around the world. I mean, I'd look at her and I'd say, Sharon, what is that? And then she'd unwrap them, you know. I, hey, look, I have, no, I have no fight with that. I think it's wonderful. I'm not a guy who preaches against makeup. I'm not a guy who preaches against wearing Christian junk ornaments. I'm all for it. What I'm trying to get you to understand is this. You can wear the crucifix. You can have the dub pin. And you can drink. You can drunk. You can get smoked. You can fornicate. And you can do all the things the world can do. And many times they do. But if you have the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit inside your heart, you'll do none of those things. Because the real ornament of grace and the real ornament of gold through the apples of gold is what's on the inside that nobody can see that forms a pattern that everybody sees who you really are in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You wear the lifestyle of who you really are. And of course, uh, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, 12, and 13 are are great principles for us. It brings us back to the reality, which I think, as God's people, we always need to be back to reality. It brings us back to home base. Let me tell you something. You can go to church. You can claim to be spiritual. You can have a 65-pound King James Bible. You can say amen, praise the Lord, and thank God for everything that you do, and you can spend your whole life trying to do what's right and serve God. But I want to tell you something. To obey is better than to sacrifice. You have to operate your family, your children, your personal life, your business, whatever you are into as a Christian by the patterns and the obedience to those patterns. When you don't do that, then you just become like everybody else in the world. You become a Saul. And you come to the place where you talk a good talk, but when it comes right down to the nitty-gritty, you don't follow the principles. And when you want, don't like somebody saying it, the last thing you would ever do is sit down with an open Bible because you're going to come up short. Because I'm telling you something, that book is very clear about the patterns. And we go through our whole life, instead of edifying each other, enabling each other. And that is never good. We'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer.